Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, Jufrod avatar of mischief and mayhem, and dadway.com. <laughs> How are you, my Jufro Jeremy friend? Very well. No fro, no. Um, uh, Showing my locks. Yeah. Um, so, Jeremy, you'd agree that we are not the sort of podcast hosts who would insist on interpreting anything and everything that happens globally solely through the lens of, of how it impacts China or focus just on the, the Chinese tape. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I guess so, although we do typically focus on yeah, well, but we, we, China. We've, we've done some shows that wander pretty far afield. Anyway, good. Uh, that said, so this is, yes, a podcast about China, and as China's global profile continues to grow, it's inevitable that there's going to be a China angle to more and more major events. So for this week's main topic, I want to try to strike a balance and address it both as it may impact China and on its own terms, as it were. So we're talking today about the current crisis in the Middle East, and specifically about ISIS or ISIL, uh, the Islamic State, uh, or the Islamic State of Iraq al-Sham, or the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and Levant, or however you want to. They're calling themselves now, I guess, just the Islamic State, and so I think that's what we're going to mostly go with, or ISIL. Um, So previously on the show, we've talked about China and the Arab Spring. We've talked about uh, Sino-Iranian relations. Uh, We've talked about even former Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi and his, uh, uh, his, his trip to China, even a, a little bit about China, Israel, and Palestine. But we've not really talked about the Iraq War. Uh, we've not really talked about the seemingly abrupt emergence of this new self-styled caliphate. Uh, so as listeners probably recall, early last month, President Obama chided China as a free rider in an interview with Tom Friedman. And uh, having, I guess, enjoyed... Uh, President Obama suggested benefits that have been bought and paid for in American blood and treasure, uh, in, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, China, of course, uh, does have a great deal at stake in the Middle East and in, in the outcomes of the, the current crisis. It continues to be very reliant on, uh, on Middle Eastern oil imports, including from Iraq. It's extracting mineral wealth, copper, and other minerals from Afghanistan. Uh, and Beijing is dealing with substantial ethnic unrest in parts of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which it blames on influence from ex- Islamic extremism, from Salafism or Jihadism, whatever, entering Xinjiang from points further west. But, uh, hey, Jeremy, we have a pretty sophisticated listenership that's interested in global affairs beyond China. So I think today we're going to uh, start off talking specifically not you know away from the China angle. And uh, we're very blessed to have guests here who are very well equipped to talk about this. Uh, first, of course, is Ed Wong of the New York Times, who was stationed in Iraq for um, many of the most intense years of the war. I think he left in 08, is that right? Uh, 07. 07, okay, right. right. And uh, who has been a guest on our show, of course, many times. Great to see you, Ed. Welcome Great. back. Thanks a lot. And we're also very pleased to welcome, for the first time, Prashant Rao, who was formerly Baghdad bureau chief of Agence France AFP, uh, stationed in uh, Baghdad from 2009 to earlier this year. Is that right? It was like June of 2009, is that right? That's right, from June 2009 to a couple months ago. Like a, a sunnier period in... in, in uh, and when did you arrive first, uh, Ed, in Iraq? Uh, in no, uh, November 2003. Yeah, so we, we basically, ship, uh, in, on the show tonight, we can kind of cover 2003 until this 2014, year. 2014, right? Yeah, right. Okay. most of the war. We were very, very lucky then. So um, anyway, let me, let me uh, f- finish up with Prashant here. He's reported extensively from both Iraq and from Syria, right? You covered... Oh, I, I wouldn't say extensively from Syria. <laughs> but, yeah, and you're I've now in Beijing studying Chinese. You may not Chinese, be here right now. Which is more dangerous. Long, so. uh, I like to say I've been plagued by the two AQIs, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Air Quality Index. <laughs> <laughs> so AQI is the, is the ever-present enemy for poor Prashant Ra. Uh, anyway, welcome to Seneca Prashant, and uh, welcome very much to Chokey Beijing, although today is a lovely day. Yeah, we... we 
the 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 uh, gods of the Politburo were smiling on Seneca today. We had a, a good day. Literally, here our show. Thank you, um, Xi Jinping. So, for those of our listeners who may have been living in a cave for the last couple of years, what is the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant? And how should we understand ISIL? Is it a terrorist organization? Is it a nascent state, a new caliphate? Some, is it a modern state? Is it some combination thereof? I'll throw that to you, Prashant. What do you think? What's, how should we understand what this organization is and their capabilities? So, I, I would say <clears throat> it's important to differentiate the Islamic State from pretty much any other militant group that you've ever read about or encountered. It's probably the most capable, most organized, most lethal group that anyone has come across, certainly in, you know, modern history. Um, the crucial difference, I would say, between the Islamic State and most other sort of militant groups is, you know, Al-Qaeda is obviously a very, very brutal, lethal organization, even towards the Sunni population from which, you know, they're co-religionists. But I think the Islamic State's crucial difference is they're astoundingly well-organized. They're astoundingly well-financed, but they're not dependent on outside finance. And this is where we get into sort of the complications of fighting them. So from the organizational bit first, if you sort of follow the Islamic State, they're very impressive in how they sort of um, organize themselves. They issue annual reports that everybody can read. Oh, we've assassinated 30 people in Diyala this year. We've assassinated 45 people in Mosul. And they tally up who they assassinated, when they assassinated them. They're highly detailed, very long reports. That's their top line, basically. And then the <laughs> Exactly. Um, uh, but then the financing thing is also very different. So one of the, you know, I think reasonable people can argue about this, but one of the sort of success in fighting Al-Qaeda was fighting the financing stream that went to Al-Qaeda. And that was largely because they were dependent on donations, on Gulf financing, things like that. Um, the Islamic State is very different. I mean, I think anybody who tells you the exact proportion of where their income comes from is lying to you because nobody really knows. But I think the crucial difference is they are very much self-financed. So the uh, component parts are oil sales and taxation. That's right. and, uh, taxation, extortion, kidnap and ransom, um, oil sales. And then there is a not an insignificant portion that comes from donations um, from the Gulf, places like that. But, you know, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia have recently passed and are increasingly enforcing laws against that. Um, but things like kidnap and ransom. Uh, so, for example, before they took over Mosul in June, you know, the among the estimates for how much money they were making was about $12 million a month, just in Mosul alone. And that's a city of 2 million people. And then they had Raqqa in Syria. They had, you know, various other territories here and there. So the um, in terms of the ransoming, I mean, there's been obviously a lot of discussion of this in the media because of the the two recent uh, murder, brutal beheadings of James Foley. Yeah. Um, and uh, it seems in the case of those two unfortunate gentlemen, um, that they, there was an attempt to extort money from their families. And when that failed, they decided, oh, well, we might as well use them for propaganda. Do you think that, that understanding is correct? I wouldn't classify myself as an expert on this. I think that's a reasonable understanding. I, that's the, certainly the understanding I have. I mean, the Islamic right. State is not... It, it is a, pragma, a pragmatic organization in more ways than we would expect. Um, it's not the sort of zealot organization that is just out to kill people. So they've, they've kind of perfected a mix of like neoliberal management techniques with <laughs> like vice media, like new media savvy. Right. The and new media component's an important one for them in terms of recruiting too. Like they're on Twitter, they, the beheading videos they put out there, like they, um, 
they're gathering recruits from their presence online. I think that, yeah, I mean, just to speak to the Twitter bit, it's actually, again, this is where the Islamic State is sort of a class above everybody else. Um, so, for example, um, I think The Atlantic did a fantastic piece a few months ago about how um, the Islamic State for a little while had an app that you could download to your sort of phone right. that would sort of took over your Twitter account. And then basically, if they put out a uh, sort of a tweet about a beheading or whatever they might put out, it automatically retweeted on everybody's account who had that app. So it had this amplification effect where all of a sudden these tweets were just flooding Twitter. Um, and so it has a very sophisticated um, follower count. I mean, that's a terrible term yeah, to use, but I mean, so. like the people who support the Islamic State are very well educated. They're very, they're very useful in very many ways. And just, sorry, I know I'm going on for a while, but the one other thing that sets them apart from Al-Qaeda so in Syria, one of the interesting things about um, the Islamic State versus Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda franchise in Syria, Syria, is that Jabhat al-Nusra has quite high entry requirements. So even if you're a jihadist, um, it's not easy to join Jabhat al-Nusra. Jabhat al-Nusra often has an Arabic language requirement, mm -hmm. and they often require that you be introduced to them by somebody who's already in Jabhat al-Nusra. ISIS is not the same. ISIS doesn't really care about language. Um, I think I read a, something just very recently that they purposefully have... Um, Chechens, Saudis, and uh, other nationalities in high positions of responsibility because they want to encourage fighters from around the world. And so that creates another network effect in that if you only speak English, you're still of use to them, but you're not terribly of use to Jabhat al-Nusra. And that makes it even more sort of sophisticated because then you have your, you know, your Danish programmer, your French whatever, you've got somebody in Birmingham or, you know, are they Are they as ideologically rigid then? No, you're, you're suggesting that, that, that maybe the requirements are, I mean, the, the, the Arabic requirement presumably has to do with the ability to, to recite, right, the, the, the Quran. And uh, are they less sort of, uh, you know, dedicated to Wahhabism or uh, are they, are they uh, ideologically, how would you characterize them? Okay, so ideologically they are sort of the extremist extremist, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but, um, you know, I would say that the language requirement I mean, the people who are coming to them are typically zealots as it is. And so there's not, I'm not saying that there's not a vetting process, because otherwise you would imagine that intelligence agencies would have people but who would have totally tried, right? yeah, things like that. Um, but I mean, I'm just, I, I mean to say that the, the entry requirements are dramatically lower than Jabhat al-Nusra. And so um, they are still very ideologically driven. It's not to say that they're just sort of taking in fighters from everywhere, um, but they're much more willing to consider fighters from, for example, Denmark. I mean, I'm just Germany, France, the United States, um, places like that. One thing to note is that they didn't come out of a vacuum, that they're, um, they, they're, uh, um, their precursors were um, uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group in yeah, Iraq, which is also a very brutal group, um, and one that uh, started off as uh, called One God and Jihad, and then changed into al-Qaeda in Iraq after they pledged allegiance to um, al-Qaeda. And then eventually the U.S. and Sunni tribes that were um, that have grown impatient and hostile towards them um, sort of contained them in Iraq. And then they, um, you know, members retreated to Syria and also they aligned themselves with Bath, former Ba'athist officers. So really, they, yes. they aligned themselves with former Ba'athist officers right. who are Alawites, which is a branch of, a branch no, of Syria. No, Ba'athist officers in Iraq. Oh, so in Iraq. Sunnis, 
Um, but, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom on these former Ba'athist officers were that they were moderate Sunnis. But in the, I think in the current climate, I've read that a lot of them have become more fundamentalist. Um, and so they've adapted to the ideology of um, al-Baghdadi or others in ISIS. And then, but they themselves are, are an important part of the organization. Like um, Prashant was saying that they're, it's amazing how well organized they are. Part of it is because they have these former Iraqi army officers who worked under Saddam who are running things. So is there their organizational excellence, um, I mean, said in a, a non-normative sense, just just descriptive sense only uh is this what we can chalk up their meteoric rise to i mean they they look look, look, look honestly uh in december of last year a handful of americans knew the, the name of the islamic state uh and, and now it's on everyone's lips they came apparently you know out of nowhere they, they didn't obviously but what explains their 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 incredibly quick rise to uh geographic control of such an impressive region of western Iraq and parts of eastern Syria? Um, so I can only really speak to the Iraqi portion of that. Certainly in Syria, it's just a mess. There's just a thousand different fighting groups and the right. Islamic State has gotten in there. I, it's far more complex than Iraq, certainly. Um, but uh, in Iraq, there are uh, several different factors at play that suddenly, I mean, Mosul was the sort of, if you sort of use the the terrible cliche, it was the straw that broke the camel's back because there were several things that were happening in Iraq that were indicative of a country that had a lot of problems going on. For example, the army, which we all saw melt away in June in Mosul and then later in Tikrit, uh, was a very problematic army. On paper, it apparently has 350,000 people. In fact, that's not really true due to corruption, people who don't show up, things like that. Um, you know, it speaks to the sort of the sectarian frustration. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have characterized it as sectarian war. Um, earlier this year, um, but the sectarian sort of difference, certainly, because there were lots of Shia soldiers in Mosul, and they didn't right. really feel, I would say, a connection to their population who despised them. The Iraqi army in Mosul was widely despised. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was other factors, um, you know, there was an Arab-Kurdish split as well, where the Kurds possibly could have helped, and in some accounts offered to help, and the Arabs in Baghdad said they didn't want the help, and then when they asked for it, it was too late. Um, as with many things, when a country collapses in the way that Iraq has, it's not one thing. It's lots of different things that happened. And ISIS, as Ed said, was, um, I mean, its precursor organization was called the Islamic State of Iraq. Um, and then they expanded into Syria in sort of April 2013. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I'm just moving on to, to the American reaction to this, I mean, which is, I think, maybe it's just, um Many of our listeners are, are Anglophones and many Americans. With the slaughter of the Yazidis and then the videotape beheadings of Foley and later of, of Salaf just the other day, is American public opinion really shifting on the issue of intervention, of a, a sort of a more robust intervention? Well, you were just in the U.S., Prashant. What did yeah, you hear, Prashant? You were there? just in, in New York, right? I was. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think U.S. public opinion is definitely more interested, but it didn't... I don't, I mean, it was all anecdotal. I don't feel like there's a general sense that <laughs> there's any desire for American boots on the ground. Okay. I, mean, I mean, it definitely seems like it's softened enough for these airstrikes, which are becoming more and more numerous. Right. But um, you, you saw that Steve Cole piece in, in The New Yorker. I don't know. The comment. I haven't read the comment there. Okay. Yeah. Well, he, he basically makes the case that, I mean, not without misgivings, that uh, American intervention needs to be a whole lot more vigorous against ISIS. He styles right. it. He, he wants President Obama to create a coalition that involves Jordan and Turkey and uh, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to engage um, ISIS not just with American air power, 
but uh, you know, presumably with ground troops and to sap what he identifies. I think in, in the he he puts it very memorably the, the the source of its power that ISIS feeds above all on the suffering of Syria. Seems a pretty tall order. Right. I mean, I think that uh, from what I've read, um, I mean, we're far from the U.S., but from everything I've read, the American popular opinion is that you don't want we don't want to be involved in another war in the Middle East. And the Syria civil war is probably the messiest outside of the Iraq war. I think the messiest um, conflict that we could possibly get into in the Middle East. And I don't think that the Americans have a stomach for it. I think the um a lot of people have given Obama a hard time for saying, oh, we don't have a strategy immediately for dealing with ISIS. But um, it seems like an honest answer. <laughs> right. It seems like an honest answer. I think if you look at what he's doing, he knows that uh, the American public doesn't want um, they won't have the stomach for American ground war um, in the Middle East. So how far can you really go against ISIS without putting boots on the ground? Um, even for certain types of airstrikes, you need spotters on the ground. You need people. You need people to gather intelligence and you can't trust um anyone who walks in off the street with the intelligence to tell you where to do that strike i mean the even in the early stages of the afghanistan war um right after 9 11 like there were lots of warlords who were telling the u.s to strike to bomb rival warlords right. and the u.s did end up killing a lot of um sort of getting involved in a lot of those like rivalries um and not necessarily bombing Taliban. And so the, I think Obama's uh, rightfully cautious in this instance. But it, at the same time, it seems, it strikes me as this may be remembered as one of the defining moments. I mean, whether we choose to act here or not is really going to, to uh, is going to, is the, the, the optics of it are, are pretty profound and, and momentous. I mean, do you not feel that way? I think it depends on who you're talking to. It depends on what happens next. I think, yeah, <laughs> partly it depends on what happens next. If the war is contained, if, like, I mean, I think the calculations, are there threats to that will, to the American homeland? And if there no threats manifest themselves that can be traced directly back to ISIS, then I don't think, or they can be, or if they're nipped in the bud, then I don't think the American people will think that, um, the White House did such a bad job or made such a bad decision. Um, also, I think it's mostly foreign policy elites, people who are involved in the foreign policy world who say, oh, we should have intervened in Bosnia and we should have intervened in Rwanda. Um, I don't think the American public really, these th- places, these events don't register with most of with huh. most Americans. I think the other couple points, I would say that <clears throat> there has to be a sort of um, calculation as to what an American ground, if, if it was an American ground invasion, what, what would that actually accomplish? I mean, even in the early stages of Mosul be falling, mm-hmm. um, there were officials and sort of diplomats in Baghdad quite clearly said Mosul cannot be retaken by a foreign force. It can only be retaken by Iraqis. It's right. a city of two million people. The Americans had to basically level Fallujah in 2004 to take it back. And that was in name only, as we saw earlier right. this year. Um, to take back Mosul would require Iraqis to take back Mosul. And because if the Americans took it back, there would still be a feeling of anger within the Maslawi population over the fact that their city was taken back by invaders. When in fact, if it was taken back by Sunni tribes, by Iraqis, that would perhaps be a longer lasting solution. And so a level of calibration is probably required as to what is required at this point by the American military. At which point, perhaps we should uh, shift our attention to China. Um, and uh, what is the, the effect on China of everything that's going on in Iraq and Syria? Um, 
there was the report on, on Phoenix, um, iFung.net and Phoenix Weekly uh, about um, uh, China being included in a, a speech by Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi among, uh, amongst enemy countries. And there was a map that uh, got some play on Chinese social media that showed the caliphate that extended as far east as, you know, perhaps as far Gansu. east as Ningxia or Gansu. Right. Um, so what do you think China's uh, point of view on the Islamic State is? And what is the Islamic State's point of view on China? Ed, do you want to take that one? Um, well, I think that we can only uh, discern what the Islamic State's point of view is from, their, from Baghdadi's speeches, which he cited the one where he mentioned uh, China twice, once as one of, as the first name listed in a list in a uh, in a list of nations that have um, sort of su- uh, re- suppressed the rights of Muslims, and then he also mentioned that there are Chinese fighters who have joined the Islamic State in that same speech. So um, that gives a little bit of a sense of where they stand on China. I mean, China, uh, I think that. People, probably people in large parts of the Muslim world are aware of China's policies in Xinjiang and including the repression of what are generally considered traditional religious practices there. Um, Ramadan fasts and so forth. Right, fasting Ramadan, women wearing veils, things like that. Um, And also they're aware that China is one of the strongest allies of Bashar al-Assad in Syria and um, a very unpopular government, the one that all the jihadists in Syria try and topple. So Russia... Iran and China are the main governments that have um, helped prop up uh, Assad, although Russia and Iran have taken much more active role. Right. I mean, China's China. role has only been, I mean, basically, they stalled a little bit on, they don't, on, on sanctions. And, right. They, yeah, they don't. They right. But you, you, you try telling Russia's. the jihadists that. I mean, right, like right. the optics are, okay. I mean, the optics are pretty clear. So The optics for a jihadi are clear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even for, like, say, Americans, for example, I mean, you read that, oh, they stalled, I mean, it's uh, China and Russia against you know, the U.S. and the... I mean, it's the... Um, China often allies with Russia on these things, and of Russia course. is a strong ally of Assad, so... Um, Ed, you, you uh, mentioned Chinese fighters in, in the ISIS forces, and, uh, you know, it happens that today, I, I just read a piece that you haven't even yet filed, uh, about a uh, Chinese fighter who was, you know, a, a Dashi, who was captured apparently uh he, he looks to be east asian we don't know of, of, of what right it could be central asian it's hard to he tell from right, the right, photos right. He, he could right. be right he could be he, he could be kyrgyz he could be anything right right um, but they do say he's trying i mean the iraqi ministry uh facebook page says he's chinese so right. we don't know they haven't released any details we don't know exactly how they know he's chinese but i mean there was an, an earlier incident where there was this fellow named Bo Wang, who put up a YouTube video about himself um, merrily uh, supporting, I, 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 I suppose he was, I mean, this is in Syria, and then he was fighting alongside uh, jihadist forces who were opposed to Bashar al-Assad, right? Right. Uh, and, uh, right, and he said he had <laughs> started reading um, sort of Salafist tracts, and then that had led him to... Do we know about this guy? Was he Hui? Was he even Muslim? The Bo Wang? Yeah. Uh, we don't know that much about it. I mean... He does, He looks like he could be ethnic Han. He could be. I mean, a lot of Hui look like Han. So it's really hard to tell from facial features. Right, um, right, right. He def- doesn't look Uyghur or Central Asian. Right, right, right. And this guy, we we have no no further information, really. Right. The one that was uh, released on the Facebook page, we, whose photos were released, we don't know. Uh, who more released about the photos? 
uh, it's a Facebook page that's sort of officially linked to the Iraqi Defense Ministry. Hmm. Right. I sent it to an Iraqi friend of mine, and he he said, who used to work for us in Baghdad, he said, yeah, that's that is a Facebook page that the Defense Ministry uses. Okay. Um. Yeah. So we we. I don't know. I mean, there was a, a Chinese special envoy to the Middle East who just stepped down as, as envoy. Right. He, he had given a press conference at the end of July. What did he say? He said that he estimated there were about 100 Chinese fighters um, in the Middle East being trained or actively fighting. And he said that most of them are probably Uyghurs. Or, oh, um, he said probably. But he also said, uh, strangely, he said, oh, I'm getting these numbers from foreign news reports, which is kind of strange because there aren't that many foreign news reports that have sort of tallied up. Chinese uh, fighters. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the source of his, his information is. He's just ducking responsibility. For <laughs> right, numbers, could be actually like, yeah. blaming it on the New York Times. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> As they often like to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the New York Times, I blame Times. everything on the New York Times. <laughs> Speaking of the New York Times, one of your most prominent columnists, Tom Friedman, the mustachioed one, uh, gave an interview, uh, had an interview with with uh, President Obama in which the whole controversial free rider comment was made. Ed, can you give us the context and maybe the subtext of what what President Obama meant when he was talking about China as a free rider, and I mean, what would President Obama actually like Beijing to be doing differently in its policy in the Middle East? Just pointing well, I think out money. That um, in in Iraq, uh, a Chinese uh, state-owned enterprise is the largest has has the largest oil interest of foreign nations or foreign companies in is that Iraq. CNPC is that right? Yeah, CNPC, right. and they're they're um, they have interest in oil fields in the south. So. There, China isn't uh, very threat. I don't think that company or China is very threatened by uh, what's going on in terms of uh, its oil interests because um, it's very unlikely that the South would be affected by the fighting uh, that's going on right now in northern Iraq. Um, the South is a Shia stronghold, and there are many uh, Shia militias, and um, and it'd be very difficult for ISIS to penetrate that mm-hmm, far down. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, they have interest in Afghanistan. They have a copper mine in Afghanistan that they've been operating for years now. Um, you, American army units have been stationed around or were stationed around there and were the main was the main security force in that area. So, Free rider. <laughs> and so China hasn't sent in any troops into any of these areas. I don't think Obama would want... I mean, he. I don't. Right now, he's yeah, not cobbling he together. Coal, he's <laughs> right. not cobbling together a coalition to um, to send troops in. I think that he wants diplomatic. I think one thing he probably wants is diplomatic pressure from China. Say, for example, in the process of forming the Iraqi government, he would like China to pressure um, politicians there to go one way or the other to include certain people in the government. Um, Prashant Spender more recently said probably has a better. sense. Does China have any leverage that that that, that, that the U.S. might not? In, 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 in well, and also in Syria, like as I said, China is and has sure, that, that's blocked a little the UN vote, right, so, right, right. That's a little clearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Syria is definitely it, China has much more leverage on Syria than it does on Iraq. I mean, right. the Iraqi political process is largely Iranian and American driven. If it was a foreign government, and then you'd add sort of Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia as sort of other actors. Um, but China, as Ed said, has a huge economic interest in uh, in Iraq, and maybe it's not threatened at the moment. But the instability does have other sort of knock-on effects to the oil sector, oil investments. Um, the Iraqi oil ministry is largely distracted, perhaps not clearing up the bottlenecks and things like that. I mean, uh, CNPC is working on the biggest oil field in Iraq, Rumela, which is targeted to produce 2.8 million barrels a day. On, sorry, 1.7 million barrels a day on its own. Wow. Um, it's enormous. Um, 
and several others. Uh, so they have enormous. There are lots of well, Chinese oil workers. There, there must be a, a fair bit of uh, consideration about this. I mean, after the Chinese experience in Libya, where they, as far as one can tell, have basically lost everything they've put into Libya in the past few years now. Um, this can't be a topic far from the minds of the people who, you know, plan energy policy and things. Yeah, I mean, what do you do? You surmise. I mean, I suppose this is only surmise. On what what does Beijing imagine it should or could be doing um, as a would-be superpower to act, uh, even in its own interests? I mean, some increased participation in uh, security or in I don't know. I mean, I, that, that, I'm looking at you. Ed. Um, I actually don't think that it will play a very active role in what's unfolding. I think that. I mean, as I was saying, I think that they're they're fairly smart in making these decisions. Um, they don't. We've seen in various wars in the Middle East and Central Asia and South Asia recently that they don't want to get involved with any one side until they see that the dynamics are shifting. Libya was a good example of this, where they suddenly started welcoming rebel forces into Beijing, had conversations with them, and um, when it looked like Gaddafi would fall. But the in Iraq's case, they know. I mean, they know Iran would never let the anything happened to the Shia South, nor would the Shia, Iraqi Shia themselves, and that their oil fields are safe. They do, there is one Chinese company with an oil interest further up in closer to Tikrit, and um, they had to evacuate Chinese workers from that area. Right. Um, but the Chinese aren't sending in further security. They, I think they, uh, maybe they might be reinforcing a little bit in the South, but they're not sending in anything that... So it's basically they're relying on risk assessment, risk management, rather right. than... Uh, Which is probably what a lot of countries do. I mean, you don't see countries sending in uh, ground troops. Into it's mostly a, your, your guy's country. Yeah. So China, China's like, <laughs> as I say, their interests are mainly in the south, just on the, on the west flank, the Shat al-Arab, right? And, and they're not facing... I mean, you know, Maliki's pretty, pretty safe in, with uh, a nice dense... I mean, ba- she force yeah. I mean, there. Iraq is and Iran's there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Iraq is very diverse. Obviously, but the South is Shia heartland. Yeah, if Shia uh, heartland. if the jihadists were to get to the South, that means Iraq as a country is largely it's Basra, it's Kufa, it's exactly. I mean, these kind of places. I mean, the Shia militias who are very actively involved in taking back cities like Amrli that we've seen in the news recently. They oh, will right. defend. Amrli has fallen now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Amrli's fallen back to the Iraqi government. Um, good, and good, good. Um, I mean, these Shia militias will defend defend cities like Kufa. Najaf, Karbala, with their lives. These are the Especially holiest Karbala, cities in yeah. Shia Islam. And, um, I mean, you'll see it, I mean, if it ever happens, the fight for Samara, um, which is further north of Baghdad, um, I mean, they will defend that right to the death. I mean, Samara is a Sunni city, but it's got a Shia shrine, and they will fight for that right to the end. Right. And the Iranians will be right in there also. Absolutely. I mean, Reuters had a really interesting story, actually, that the Iranians were heavily involved in the Amrli uh, retake. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, that there, were Fars- that there were Farsi-speaking off- there were Farsi-speaking people who were involved and said that they were involved in um, various different facets. It's well worth reading the Reuters story. Actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Could, could I and also, I don't think the Islamic State would try and take uh, invade this in southern Iraq either, or Baghdad. Like, I actually well, don't even think that they would. try Samara. I mean, I don't know if they would. Right. I think that they've got the territory that they think they can hold, and that yeah. they're, you've seen them strategically retreat from places when the Americans come with airstrikes or things like that. They, they're not um, they're not stupid enough to try and like uh, fight for Baghdad. Jeremy, Could I slightly to... change it, the, the, the tack of the conversation and just ask the two of you, wh- what's your perception of popular opinions about China in Iraq? Um, China is... Um, 
so I, I have a couple of anecdotes. I, I went to an oil field in uh, near the Iranian border, which was operated by Luke Oil. And a load of the Iraqi engineers there used to work in an oil field called Ahdab, which was run, uh, I believe, by a, a Chinese oil company. I think it was CNPC. And I asked them, well, you're moving from a Chinese oil company to a Russian oil company that you're working with. How does it feel? And they're like, oh, it's much better working for a Russian oil company. <laughs> Can't even, it's like night and day. Like, Why is that? It's like, well, I mean, we know that we're safe here. Um, health and safety, things like that. They're like, they don't, the Russians don't cut corners. Huh. Um, and, um, I mean, China doesn't really register on the... Uh, on the sort of Iraqi public opinion map. But I will say, you know, we talked about earlier, the idea of Muslims being persecuted, that does register um, from all over the world. I mean, I would have conversations with my colleagues about the Rohingya, about the Uyghurs, things like that. I mean, that heavily resonates in Iraqi television, which everybody watches, and Iraqi discourse. And so that comes through quite heavily. The the Uyghur situation and, you know... uh, yeah, things like that. Mm-hmm. So we could see a situation uh, where uh, Chinese people become victims of the kind of, uh, you know, terroristic propaganda like the the recent beheadings of the journalists. Well, do you think not by not, not by the Shiites in the south where the oil fields are that they're working are? That's right. That's I mean, likely. so I mean, the the Shia in the south are, you know, th- that's. I mean, this is an ISIS tactic, and I mean, the people who were working in the north were people i mean there were hef- there was a heavy turkish presence up there lots of Kurds. Yeah, that's the turks feel about china and, and they're very sensitive because the uyghurs of course are a turkic people or they're, they're they regard them as their ancient ancestors really yeah i mean i i'm not saying the practicality is doing it in the south but i mean if they're chinese oil operations anyway in iraq people could get taken uh, is, is there enough of a popular sentiment the way people in Iraq feel about the United States and across much of the Middle East, I mean, is there the basic material for that type of sentiment towards China to be emerging? That's what my question is. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, there might be isolated incidents that might emerge based on patterns of behavior on, in the field itself, but I don't think that would be directed towards China. Um, so, you know, there were incidents last year where, um, well, a few months ago, where uh, sort of um, Schlumberger and Baker Hughes had to sort of quickly evacuate people because they had torn down posters of revered Shia imams um, from cars because they are, you know, quote unquote, secular companies. Um, and then there's a, you know, quite interesting video on YouTube where a couple of guards who were guarding, I think it was the Baker Hughes employee, were beaten pretty badly huh. um, by Iraqis. And so, I mean, that that that's the kind of thing that could happen in an oil field. I wouldn't say that would be directed towards China, but rather a response to particular actions by employees. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chinese are always so respectful and, <laughs> and sensitive to, to... When I was in Iraq, I would often tell people I was Chinese. I, I would try and gauge whether it was better to say I was Chinese or American in any given situation, and I rarely got <laughs> negative responses to saying I'm Chinese. Um, the And also, there were a few instances... Uh, where Chinese workers were like they were construction uh, workers or um, kidnapped uh, in Anbar province, which right. is like a heavily Sunni area. And they were eventually released. Like, I think I remember one instance where maybe like a dozen of them were kidnapped by a group. Um, and I think that, you know, the common understanding was that China probably paid some sort of ransom. Um, there was a video I remember that emerged of them sort of thanking each Chinese hostage, thanking like a masked person, like as they were, um, as they were let go. And so I think that, um, I mean, if China's willing to pay a ransom, then they're not going to get, I mean, these groups rely on, um, if they end up in the hands of a Sunni militant group, they, they want the ransom. Right. 
So I'm going to shift this now to, to talk about sort of uh, the impact of all of this on U.S.-China relations and, and, and other things. So before September 11th, uh, Sino-American relations looked like they were heading for some pretty choppy waters. Uh, in April, of course, you had the Hainan incident where you had an EP-3 spy plane collide with a hot-dogging PLA Air Force fighter, resulting in that pilot's death. And things looked particularly bad. You know, the plane was forced down. Uh, then, of course, there was a major change um, that took place after the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were attacked. China was enlisted as an ally, essentially, in the global war against terror. And uh, the State Department included him, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, um, on a list of terrorist organizations. Does um, ISIS and its apparent inclusion of China on its list of enemy states, um, does that uh, offer the possibility to Beijing that its claims of outside jihadist influence you know, in Xinjiang are going to get a more sympathetic listening, or that it will have a, a more free hand to act without drawing down quite so much Western opprobrium in Xinjiang? Do you think that's that's going to happen, Ed? Well, I think if you look at some of the recent incidents that have taken place, I don't think the U.S. government really um, criticizes China very much for uh, that much outwardly for what it does in Xinjiang. Like, uh, yeah, it's all a you media guys, right? <laughs> Where it, it did say, oh, this is a terrorist attack. I, um, one, right, right. One, Jake, I think Jake the Kunming attack, it labeled it a terrorist attack. and the. Um, but I also know for a fact that China has constantly asked for U.S. help in China's war on terror in the West, and the and the U.S. Uh, refuses to get involved in it. They say it's too murky, that uh, we don't know what's really going on out there. Um, it could be, you know, total, total politics on the part of the Communist Party. We sure. can't trust what's going on. And they keep it pretty opaque. Right. Yeah. Um, um, do you think, though, Jeremy, you, 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 had, you had included a question when we, when we were working up our little list. I'm not sure I want to ask it. Um, Jeremy had asked whether he thinks why don't you read it you think the Chinese government has gotten less sympathy over attacks descri- it describes as Islamic terror than western states have I mean I think it's it's something we've all been debating I don't know I don't want to maybe let's just you don't want to ask that well why don't we, well, okay I'll ask I don't, I don't has really the Chinese to... government got less sympathy for for Muslim terrorism do you think than the US and European countries um it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to answer that because it means that there's like an objective standard of like how much sympathy you should get. But <laughs> I think that, um, but I think that if you look at it, I mean, partly it's because of the lack of transparency. I actually think that um, if China were to, like it says, oh, we have these terrorist cells operating, but with the, but often when terror attacks takes place in the U.S., then you see a government trying like, after a few days, they sort of um, put out mugshot type style photos of who they think might be responsible they say that it was planned this way like there was this and the media group. examines them in detail down to like what kind of toothbrush they bought well when actually they they do, in the school, uh, case of 9-11 like the reporters went out to cairo went to all these places to track down like mm. where these guys came from they mm. interviewed their like the father of one of the main hijackers was interviewed right. um none of this so, is going to happen in, in right none of this has happened um, and perhaps best epitomized there was a weibo uh, posting that was very popular before being censored which basically i don't remember who wrote it it was one of the usual suspects from the the you know the public intellectual liberal spectrum of, of 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 thinking who said something like they never tell you what happened they just condemn somebody and declare declare the case closed which i mean is basically what happens every time there's a terror incident it's like 43 militants were captured and locked up and uh everyone's been punished and uh let's dust our hands and get on with it right right i mean i think that the uh people in the west aren't 
I mean, as you saw from the U.S. government reaction to Kunming, they're not reluctant to call things a terrorist attack when it seems very obvious that civilians were killed. It might have been done in an organized manner by people with possible political motives. But a lot of these incidents, most of the ones you read about in the Chinese press, like they're not that clear cut. And it's just like attacks on paramilitary installations, police stations. Right. Exactly. And then they say, oh, people had knives. But then how do they kill so many people with knives? Like it's. Um, things like that, and where would uh, where did the organizational ability come from? Um, right, the so. point that I've often found myself actually debating, though, is that um, you know we've seen this this significant uptick in in uh, separatist violence in Xinjiang, uh, but I, I run up against this attitude of an unwillingness to entertain the idea that it is related to global jihadism in any way. That that you know it's it's still the the, the preponderant blame is placed. And you know maybe rightly so on on repressive policies on on uh, uh, on persecution on uh, the economic situation the dire economic situation a lot of Uyghurs face in their own land but uh, there's this this there seems to be a real resistance to even entertaining the idea that uh, the the ways that they're expressing this, this expressing the satisfaction are, are taking a more violent form as a result of their exposure to you know this this political violence that's in the air. Um, I actually don't. Th- well, I mean, I think that you're pointing out a duality, which is a false one, because I think that there is um, this. I mean, there's this. You're talking about amorphous thing called global jihadism, but everywhere where there is terrorism or insurgency, it's rooted in the particular local conditions that take place. So, for example, when we were talking about Iraq earlier, um, Prashant was pointing out how the sectarian politics of Iraq, like very messy, very. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that seems the, the fact that foreign fighters will fly in seems to belie that that that, that claim. It's not entirely local. That there is no, it's not entirely local. But the conditions that create um, that area that allows the groups to thrive and allow and foreign fighters to join it. I mean, I'm not saying that foreign, but um, I doubt that foreign fighters are responsible for much of any of the violence in Xinjiang. So. Um, well, I mean, that's uh, not, not what I'm claiming, but I, I'm, right. I'm just suge- suggesting that right. But you're, I think you're, immune to, you're to the confusing a couple of different issues because I think that the fact that foreign fighters join certain jihadist movements doesn't mean that those jihadist movements don't have the roots in what's going on in the local area. I mean, you look at Iraq and Syria; it's very obvious that. Um, well, I don't think it Islamic has to be either state. or. I think that we, we, we can't look for monocausal explanations for any of this, that there's a, 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 a great many factors that play in, and one of them might be, uh, as I say, the, the, the uh, ideological uh, ideas of, you know, Salafism and... Oh, yeah, I don't... The, the, oh, yeah, of course, that's a... That's new, a new approaches to but, solve your problems. Right, right, but, the, um, but those um, grab onto people when they have a reason to take up violence. Like, they, it's not like... I, I don't, the I don't violence necessarily buy that. I don't, a, I don't know that, that, that that's the direction of causality always. Right. Well, I mean, just this... I'm just speaking from experience and from having spoken to people yeah, in Iraq. I Rockies. defer to you having had a lot more experience with that. Um, but yeah, maybe, wanna, like, uh, Prashant has a... I mean, I, I would say that, yeah, there are people who would join jihadist movements regardless of the local circumstances. But the thing that I think... I do agree with Ed on this point is that the local environment matters not so much for the people who join the jihadist movements, but for the people who don't report the information to the police, who don't cooperate with sure. security forces, things like that. And so when the local environment is very poor for the sort of dominant community, so for example, you know, my experience would be Iraq, where a Sunni community, um, which is the minority population in Iraq, is basically being secured 
I would say, very poorly by the Iraqi army, which is majority Shia. They don't trust them. They don't provide information on perhaps, you know, their uncle who might be doing something untoward or their brother or things like that. Right. They resist that, in, in they resist. Ways, right. Yeah, I mean, creates an environment where the people who would in any case join jihadi uh, groups uh, persist. And there are people who, I mean, at least in Iraq where violence is so prevalent, where unemployment is so high, um, and where there is a feeling of genuine disenfranchisement, um, there is a feeling that, like, there. I mean, the, Amer- the American army says this all the time, that basically if you paid somebody 50 bucks, he would throw what was called an EFP um, at, a, at a, a tank, basically something that could destroy a tank. Um, and it wasn't very expensive because there were no jobs. There was very little sort of hope uh, that, of getting a job and things like that. And so the environment does play into it. There are always the hardcore, the crazies who, you know, you can't talk to. But then there are the others where if the environment was perhaps a little bit more permissive, okay. the situation might be different. Yeah. So I, I wasn't re- I really didn't want to get into that whole that whole topic because I, I, I know that I have some fairly strong feelings about it. But anyway. No, I, I think want- it was good we did. Okay, well, but uh, we can move swiftly move along. I, I have another another big topic that I want to talk, I want to talk about. Is there an element of I told you so in Beijing as it surveys the wreckage of the Arab Spring? Is there, uh, I mean, it was very much encouraged by the Western liberal democracies, and as it surveys that wreckage in countries like Libya and especially on Syria, um, to what extent is the crisis that's now enveloping Iraq, the persecution of the Iraqi Yazidis and the other Kurds, uh, the the Iraqi Christians' war against the majority Shia, is it attributable to a blowback from American exuberance about toppling Bashar al-Assad? Do you think that they're saying you shouldn't have encouraged the, the, the Syrian revolt. See, we were right. I haven't seen anything um, report, like I haven't seen any statements directly addressing that, but I think you can extrapolate from the way that the Chinese state media reports on the violence okay. during that. It's played up very much um, and that they, and there's, there's certain language uh, in some of these reports that say, oh, like revolutions lead to this or rebellions lead to this. And it's not just in Iraq, it, they talk about Libya, Libya and about too. other countries, Egypt, right? Even Egypt is not exactly right. Exactly, Egypt. I think um, so. I think that there's no question that at least um, if reading the state media, that you get a sense that there's. Uh, I told you so. Right, a little yeah. bit of uh, self satisfaction in terms right. of how things are. Right. Is that you read too? I mean, I'm looking. At, uh, I really can't. Been I mean, watching the state I've, media. I mean, I haven't. As I said earlier, I haven't even graduated to novice about China yet. <laughs> Oh, but I mean, I'm, I'm nevertheless very glad that you're you're here with us. Um, but with the civil war continuing to rage in Syria and the Israeli war on Hamas and Gaza, and um, um, you know, we see still very aggressive moves by ISIL, ISIS in Iraq. Um, you know, is is the pivot to Asia a realistic thing now? I mean, look at this, who, who was it? Some Ed Sanger from your. David Sanger, right. He talked about a three-headed monster now that Obama's facing. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the three heads headline. are Putin and Xi Jinping and, 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 and al-Baghdadi, right? right. <laughs> <kind of saying>. <laughs> <laughs> the Chinese foreign ministry won't be happy about that. No, no, yeah, no, I no, think no, you no, might no, have no, a tea-drinking no, session you're tomorrow, tea <laughs> Comrade Wong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I mean the, it, it just seems like... Um, if if they have to give ground anywhere, it's not going to be clearly now. They've drawn a line in the sand in Estonia. I mean, you know, Obama just gave this very, 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 you know, quite impassioned talk in Tallinn. We're here. NATO will, you know, back you. They're committed very solidly to the new uh, members of NATO. Uh, that's not going to change. I mean, he, he's very, very seriously considering uh, ramping up uh, the efforts in the Middle East, in, in, in Mesopotamia. What about in, in China? I mean, is this the is the pivot over? 
Well, I mean, so it, I, I think it's hard it? because uh, I guess I could ask you how you would define the pivot. I think the pivot's always been very amorphous, and you can't really. Um, it, I mean, it wasn't a military effort. They placed some Marines in Australia, and people yeah, read that. But it's not a military effort. It's more of a um, rebranding effort, right? Rebranding. Rebranding. It could, right. It could very, I mean, there's obvious flashpoints, right, where where it could require a military decision to be made on the Diaoyu Islands and Spratleys, and uh, especially in the Diaoyu. Right. Syndrome. Right, but I mean, there, the it has a treaty, it has an alliance with Japan. So if something were to happen, there, the U.S. would be obligated to you really, come in. Okay, okay. Um, no, I think because Japan is uh, in, is a cornerstone of its uh, sort of um, footprint in Asia. I don't. I think it would uh, probably do so. It, it would likely step in. So yeah. I mean, you look skeptical, so you can. Are you with me? On I that am very skeptical, but I, I mean, I think they would do nothing. Uh, and they, they but perhaps more likely is that there's some, you know, problem with a, a U.S. spy plane and a hotshot diggity dog, you know, a fighter pilot. Well, it's been top gun. I mean, happened just now. Yeah, I mean, I, don't you think that's probably the most likely scenario that yeah, would require yeah, I mean, that would set off something? Right. That, that uh, a robust American really response. A, I mean, but then it's wrong to frame it as. as something on whether it's acting on pivot i mean something like that it would have it would there would be a response in any case like if something were to happen to right right fighter jet it's not a question so the pivot doesn't really exist basically uh i mean you'll hear some people say that that it doesn't really exist i mean it's partly sort of like a uh you could you could argue that it's partly a propaganda campaign on part of the u.s uh it shores up alliances diplomatically um it some some people criticize it for you know um, putting China on too much of a sort of red alert for what the U.S. Um, designs might be in Asia. Right. There's, yeah. there's not a single person I've ever met who's you know in, in the foreign policy uh, in foreign policy circles in China who doesn't just read this as a species of containment. Right. Right. Most. Uh, yeah. I think most would say that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Jeremy, is there anything that you want to finish off with before we move on to recommendations? We've had a very productive little chat here. I think. I think we had one question that we talked about, which was just the question of, uh, aside from the pivot, I mean, does uh, do America's problems in the Middle East present China with an opportunity uh, of one kind or another, diplomatic, commercial, or otherwise? America's or you use crisis in- equals opportunity thing. Yeah. Well, no, but no, he's, I, not, no. he's, not, he's not breaking down. <laughs> no, because <laughs> no, it's somebody else's crisis. We do. <laughs> right, right. So the old saw doesn't really apply in this right. case. I mean, uh, you know. Um, will, does song. it present? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure where. Is how China, China going to? Is China going to do anything to take advantage of American despairs or weakness uh, in the Middle East at the moment? I suppose. For in terms of, I mean, you could, some might argue that the sort of more aggressive actions we've seen by China in the sea surrounding this in this region are because they think that America doesn't have um, is overstretched and doesn't have the resources to really. Uh, push back anyway but i mean that's all theoretical i think that um china will come out like it the biggest advantage is that america has turned has to uh turn its focus to a certain degree to other parts of the world right. whereas hoping to um focus more diplomatic more of its diplomatic efforts on asia so the um people say that you know a lot of people say oh, the biggest winner of bush's invasion of iraq was china because no, it was Iran, clearly. Right, it was Iran. But the China thing is like something that a lot of people say. But, you know, the, you, you get their meanings that right. the yeah, sure. U.S. Didn't, couldn't focus any sort of efforts on, um, you know, on a back and forth or containment or whatever you want to call it 
with China if they saw China as a as a rising competitor in this mm. part of the world. This is when we wish we had Stephanie Kleiner Albright back on the show. She give us a nice analysis of uh, the sort of the Chinese foreign policy perspective. She's always so good, good, good with that. It'd be nice. Maybe I'll get her back in town and, and uh, get her on to, to talk about this particular question, which I think is is, is a very interesting one. Um, let's move to recommendations, guys. What do you think? Is that cool? Uh, thanks. I think it was, a, like I said, a very uh, stimulating conversation. Jeremy, we usually start with you with recommendations, so why don't we... All right. I, I've got two, actually. The one uh, is a podcast. Uh, I, it's called Five Eyes, and it's an LGBT, lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, and trans community Gender. podcast. And I think they've just launched with one show that I've listened to about 10 minutes of, uh, produced right here in Beijing. So we'll put the link up to that. Um, and the other thing is, I think, uh, talking of the Islamic State, one of the best things I've, I've seen on it is a, a, series, a video series done by Vice, uh, oh a five-part um, series on the Islamic State. And this is almost a, a perfect encapsulation of the absolutely fucked up post fucking future universe we live in where vice media which is basically the media equivalent of the islamic state is doing a documentary on the islamic state and it's just so interesting it's kind of meta yeah, yeah. so okay that's for me. okay i will with some reluctance include that on our list of recommendations <laughs> prashant rao what um, you got for us? so i can't speak to anything about china but i would say that you know since we've talked about iraq i think a really interesting thing to read is uh, foreign affairs uh, released a sort of mini ebook called The Endgame in Iraq. I think it's The Endgame, something like that. Um, and it's basically a collection of essays on Iraq, on Syria, on ISIS. Um, and it's really informative. And if you only get ch- the chance to read one essay in that, I would recommend, I think it's called uh, The Iraq We Left Behind by Ned Parker. Okay. He read it, he wrote it about two and a half years ago. So you would think it's a bit dated. But it is actually incredibly prescient about prescient, um, prescient. Sorry, about how um, how you know the Iraqi state itself is quite weak, and uh, at the time, you know, the major thor- discussion was whether Maliki is a dictator, and the argument was Maliki can't be a dictator because the Iraqi state itself is so weak, and that is actually <laughs> <It's a> shitty <laughs> dictator. Yeah, and so unlike Xi Jinping, and it's it's definitely. I mean, I would recommend reading the whole thing, which of course I did because I'm interested in Iraq. But if you only have time to read one, or if you're only inclined to read one, I would read that one. And there's another one about ISIS. I mean, there are loads. They're all very good. Oh, good, good, good. That sounds like something I'd really want to sink my teeth into. That's great. Thanks. Ed, what um, do you have despite, uh, first of all, despite your reluctance about Vice, I second uh, Jeremy's recommendation because a few weeks ago I watched that five-part series plus some other videos that Vice did from inside the Syrian war, and I think they were all excellent. And they took you to places in the war that I haven't seen uh-huh. elsewhere, at least in other pieces of visual journalism. Um, but my recommendation on this topic would be to read... Um, I was there from 03 to 07, and a colleague of mine, Dexter Filkins, came out with a book about that period called The Forever War. That's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. I think for anyone who hasn't read it, it's the best book that captures what it felt like to be in Iraq during those years. Um, Jogging in Baghdad. (laughs) Right, during the height of the American invasion. I think a lot of experiences that Dexter wrote about, I mean, they're all completely accurate, and they really capture the feel of uh, living in Iraq and working there and what the Iraqis um, were going through from people, uh, civilians suffering during the war to the elite politicians who were uh, fighting for power. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd read a, a bunch of Iraq books. I mean, I'd read you know Imperial Life in the Emerald City, and I'd read um, One Bullet Away by uh, Nathaniel Fick, which is actually one I'd highly recommend. He was in the First Marine re- Recon in both uh, I- I- Iraq and in Afghanistan in the early part of the wars. Uh, really good book. Um, but my recommendation is actually going to be totally unrelated to anything we've been talking about. More like Jeremy's. Uh, um, I, I don't want to sound too morose and obsessed on my father's death, but I, I read at the recommendation of a friend uh, Philip Roth's book, Patrimony, which is uh, just amazing. I mean, anyone who is facing the, the, the final years of one of his parents' life needs to read, read this book. It's, 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 it's an, uh, you, you, you get a, a sense for uh, the the depth of, of Roth's soul. It's just amazing. And, and, and also the, the power of his prose. He's not writing as you know Nathan Zuckerman. He's not writing as... He's writing as Philip Roth. It's, it's actually just a, a memoir of, of the final years of his father's life. And uh, on a Roth kick, I, I, I went back and read um, American Pastoral, which is just a great book it's it's up there among i think the the very best books of the 20th century best novels of the 20th century american pastoral by philip roth so i'm gonna go out with that one and uh i'm gonna thank you ed for coming it was Thanks, great to have you Thanks, and prashant it's great i'm mean, gonna have you on again and as you especially as you come up to speed you're gonna have all sorts of stuff to say about china here as well and, and we, we really look forward to it no i keep thinking back to what jeremy said i think a few podcasts ago about how if you've been here a week you can write a book if you've ah yeah yeah that's very been much here a month you can write an article yeah. five that's how I years ago. get the book out and write a postcard yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> jeremy man uh, what do we got next week um, I don't know what the order of things. I mean, the reason I, I mentioned the LGBT podcast is we have recorded an LGBT yeah. podcast, which might precede this one. No, I think we'll, come gonna, after we'll this run this one, one first. We'll, we'll run this one first. first. Yeah. Okay. It's more so, in case the Islamic State crumbles. Exactly. Are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah. Okay. Because, you know, we, yeah. we mentioned a lot of current writing on it. So, um, okay. Uh, and, folks, we will see you next week. And uh, take care. Bye-bye.